All right. Well, good morning, Faith family. It's good to see all of you here this morning. So glad you're here. I hope that your new year has gotten off to a really good start. Um, if you're anything like me, you are uh, one that sets goals. And so I, I've been thinking about those goals prior to January 1 and the buildup of, of New Year's and all the things. And the New Year's Day came and I said, well, you know, it's New Year's Day, so why don't we start on the second. So I decided I was going to start January 2nd, but when the second rolled around, we were still in Florida and we weren't going to drive back to North Carolina until the third. So I said, well, we'll just start when we get back to North Carolina. But by the time I got back to North Carolina, I said, man, you know, it's not Monday yet. Monday's the best day to start. So tomorrow uh, I, will, I will dive into some of those goals, but uh, maybe you're similar to me in that. But I, I hope you have, uh, have had a great start to the new year. I hope you had an awesome Christmas. So glad that you are here today. Can we just praise the Lord for the worshiping song, our team leading us? so well. Awesome. Well, hey, today uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. As you know, we have been journeying through the book of Romans. And so if you're new here, uh, one of the things we really love to do is just open the Bible and work through uh, books of the Bible, just verse by verse. So we believe all of God's word is profitable. But our lead team met a couple of months ago and we decided that uh, focusing a little bit of January on the essentials of what uh, church life is truly about would, would be healthy for us. And so we want to take a little bit of time today and talk about some biblical characteristics of a healthy church. And, and I'm going to extract some things that I saw from the International Mission Board. So this is like several years ago, they put out this thing that identified 12 characteristics of a, a healthy church. And I want to walk through some of those. There are so many more things that could be said, but it's been distilled down to these 12. And we're going to do our best to just kind of walk through these and I'll do so quickly. So we'll spend our time today doing this. And then very soon we'll be back in the book of Romans, starting in Romans chapter 11. We have made it all the way to chapter 11. So I assume in the next couple of years, we'll finish the book of of Romans. It's been a lot of fun journeying through that book and I can't wait to dive uh, back in. But for today, I want our driving text to be out of Matthew. So if you'll grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16, grab your Bibles. Maybe you have a phone or iPad handy. You can look that up. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13. And you can just stay seated today because I'm going to make a few comments as we work through uh, these verses. So Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. If you found your spot, we say amen. All right, here we go. Matthew 16 verse 13 says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now this is an important place for us to just make note of. See, Caesarea Philippi used to be under Herod's rule. And before that, you see Caesar Augustus. So you see this kind of attribution to uh, Caesar with Caesarea, but it it now is in Philip's reign. And the literal translation is Caesarea of Philip. And, And so this is the district that they find themselves in. And the reason that's important is because it's a highly uh, political area. So think politically charged. And, and th- this is what's happening here. Now, all of the Jews who understood the Bible well, they believed that God was going to send a political Messiah, one that was going to redeem Israel, set Israel straight. And they were looking for a political redeemer. And so there's a lot of buzz around who this Messiah is, which is why going back to the Christmas Eve sermon, speaking of little town of Bethlehem, it didn't make sense to anybody that that God would send a political Messiah to be born under the shadow of, of the Herodian, uh, this, this respite palace that King Herod made. It didn't make sense for a Messiah to be born in a manger. I mean, Jesus came in great humility. And, and so we see 
We see this Jesus on the scene now, Jesus incarnate, and they're in this place called uh, Caesarea Philippi, and, and it's highly politically charged, and he asks a question. He says, hey, guys, I want to ask you, and this, this is his disciples he's talking to. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that phrase, Son of Man, is interesting because Son of Man is used 80 times in the New Testament. It's a phrase that Jesus really liked uh, to, to be called. And so this is why he, he, he chose to use, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, there are many who did not like that phrase because they thought it leaned too much into his, his humanity. We know Jesus came 100% divine, but also 100% human, but he came in great humility. And we read that in Philippians chapter two, the great humility of Jesus. So he asked the question, who do people say the son of man is? And this is an Old Testament reference as well. And so this would have been familiar to biblical scholars of that day, this phrase son of man. So it's like, man, in this politically charged climate here in Caesarea Philippi, who are people saying that I am. And so they began to answer. They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. So now you're just kind of taking up the mantle of John the Baptist and finishing what he started. Other people say that you're Elijah, which was this well-known, uh, well-respected Old Testament prophet. Another one is Jeremiah. And they mentioned Jeremiah there as well. And then they say, and, and some other prophets as well. So, so maybe you're just one of the prophets. These are, this is what people are saying. But then Jesus asked a, a follow-up question. He said, but, but listen, I want to say this to you. Who do you say that I am? So thanks for telling me what the people are saying. But You've been with me. You've walked with me. You are my disciples. You are my, my, my learners. So what, what do you say? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, who was known to be one who spoke up first, he was that kind of personality, had that type of character about him. He spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, Jesus liked this answer, and this is what he said to him. He said, blessed are you. Well, why is he blessed? Because, listen, all are blessed who call on the Lord Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and know him as Savior because we experience the forgiveness of God. We experience the free grace of God. Man, Simon is a blessed man because he understands who Jesus truly is is. And he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah, which is his Aramaic family name, which literally translates Simon, son of John. And so he continues on. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So this Trinitarian God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, you did not come to this conclusion on your own. Like God has revealed this to you and I'm grateful that you know this to be true. And then verse 18, he says something quite compelling, which is the foundation of what we're gonna talk about today. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. Now the Greek translation is Petros here, which means like little stone, which is interesting because Peter talks about this in other places of he and the other apostles being little like living stones. Uh, so, so we see him calling now, Simon, not Simon Barjono, but he's calling him Peter, which means rock. And he says this in verse 18, I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, now he's not talking about literally on Peter. Some, has looked, some have looked throughout the quarters of history and they concluded that, okay, what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to build his church on, on Peter, but that's not actually what he's saying at all. There's a different Greek term here for rock, which is similar, but it's, it's different than the term he called Peter. Peter is Petros and uh, rock is Petra. So he's saying on this grand rock, me being the chief cornerstone, this is 
Jesus. He's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, through the 12 apostles, we see that he uses them and they are certainly, uh, you know, stones that he uses. But Ephesians says he is the chief cornerstone. We actually see this in the book of Psalms as well. He is the chief cornerstone. And he's saying, on this foundation, I will build my church. And then something pretty fascinating is said next. He says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the, the term gate is significant because gates were used as a defense mechanism, similar to what we have now, but gates were used to enter the temple, right? It's a defense, so you can't enter unless you go through the gate. Gates were used in the city. You'd have to come through the city gate in order to enter the city. Uh, gates were used in prisons as well. In order for you to get in, there's this defense mechanism called a gate. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that re regardless of what defensive mechanisms that the enemy uses, who is the father of lies and the ruler of the world, regardless of what he does, what Jesus is saying here back in Matthew 16 is he's saying that the gates of hell will not stop my church from progressing. So regardless of what the enemy does, regardless of how the world responds, and many of us, we turn on the news and we see how crazy our world has gotten, regardless of any of that, none of that will stop the progression of God's church. Now here in Matthew 16 is where we see the first term church being used in the New Testament. And it's the Greek word ekklesia, which means those that are called, those that are gathered. So we see this church who's assembled and they're called out. So what does it mean to be a part of this church? What does it mean to be a part of the called out ones, the ones that are assembling? We call what we went to today when you got up and you got dressed and you made your way here and you found a place to park. And you know, thank God you're in the 1130 service because 1015, everybody's mad at each other in the parking lot and can't find a place to seat and everything's overflowed. So you picked a great service to be here, but you're, you're here and it took a lot for you to get here. But a lot of you used the language today. You said, we're waking up and we're going to church today. What does it mean? to be a part of the church. Well, scripturally speaking, the Bible says if you're a Christian, you are the church. This is actually a building, right? It's a great building. We praise God for the building, but it is a building and solely a building. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you are the church. So when you wake your family up next week, you can say this. You can say, all right, church, get up. We got to go to the building and worship today. That's what you can do, all right? So what does it mean to be a healthy biblical church. Again, we're going to use the International Mission Board and some of the things that they have listed here that helps us to see what a healthy biblical church looks like. We'll go through these fairly uh, quickly. Here's number one. A healthy biblical church is a church that practices biblical evangelism. Biblical evangelism. The reason I say this is there are a lot of evangelistic tactics out there that are used that are not biblical. They're not right. They're not helpful. They're not good. And growing up in the South, I mean, I, we grew up in the deep South. So we're in North Florida. And in North Florida, they say the further North you get, the further South you are. Like it's just a deep, deep South. And in North Florida, there's this church culture. Some of it can be really good, but some of it can be really bad. And there's a, there's a church culture there that will often cause you to fall into this trap that we call cultural Christianity. And a lot of times you fall into that trap through, through terrible means of evangelism. I'll give you the most overt example that I can. And I actually had a professor in Florida uh, tell me this story. It's something that he witnessed firsthand. 
He said that there was a Bible school at this church and uh, they always give an invitation at the end of Bible school to kind of call the kids to make a decision to follow Jesus. And he said on the stage, they had this one bucket. Now I've shared this with you before, but they had this one like barrel actually that represented hell. And then on the other side of the stage, they had this barrel that represented heaven. Now the heaven barrel was painted all blue and nice and it represented family and friends and everything good. And the hell barrel was painted in red. It had flames on it. And they talked about you eternally burning forever if you choose that barrel. So they went through this entire invitation saying, if you want to go to heaven and be with your friends and with your family, drop your name in the heaven barrel. If you don't want to go there and you want to burn forever in this place called hell, drop your name in the hell barrel. Well, guess what? Every doggone kid wrote their name down like three times and put it in the heaven barrel, right? Why? Because of manipulation, right? It was a scare tactic. And they thought that they were doing uh, a good thing by saying, hey, we got all these kids saved. But the reality is a lot of those kids had no idea the decision that they were making. Two things. Number one, God is sovereign over that. But number two, God helped the one who thought that it was correct for him to manipulate an invitation like that. Okay? So uh, we need biblical evangelism. What is biblical evangelism? It is faithfully sharing the gospel. Our success is not tagged to whether the person responds to the gospel or not. Our success is hinged upon us faithfully sharing the truths of the gospel. Well, why, why? How can we say that? Why this is true? Well, very clearly, we see biblically that Jesus is the one that saves. We are called to plant, we are called to water, but it is God that gives the increase. So we plant, we water, and the way we do that is by faithfully sharing the gospel. So in order for us to be a healthy biblical church, we must practice biblical evangelism. This means that as a church, we are built through the fervent and faithful proclamation of Christ and him crucified. We read this in Corinthians 2.2. It's either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2.2. Um, Paul says, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So we should preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus and Jesus being crucified and Jesus rising again so that if we trust in him, we can have eternal life. Here's the good news. The new believer... The one who does respond to that and does place their faith in Jesus, now their life is not done. It's not that, okay, we're finished. I've checked that box. I've got my bus ticket. I'm going to make my way to heaven. I'm good. No, man, you're just getting started, which leads us to the next thing. We need biblical discipleship. We must be pouring into one another. We see in the Great Commission that we are called to make disciples of all nations. So we are called, man, to disciple, disciple, disciple. We need three discipleship relationships in our life, according to some things that we see in the word. So you, you can have like a Paul in your life. The apostle Paul, he was an older, wiser uh, believer, and, and we need someone in our life that's older and wiser. Man, I praise God for some of the older men in my life that I can, I can kind of pull on them and, and they just pour their wisdom into me like some experience that they have in life where they've gotten things wrong and they've learned from it. And then some other areas where I'm getting things wrong and they can see it. Like, I'm just grateful for that. You can also have a Barnabas in your life. A Barnabas is one that can encourage you to someone that you can do life with. Someone that, I love this, knows everything about you and they still love you. Aren't those people great? And by the way, this type of person is one that can hold you accountable. This type of person is one that can say, hey man, I just want to talk to you. 
How you doing? How's your marriage? And it's not as someone who's like better than you and they're getting it right all the time, you're getting it wrong, so they're just playing referee in your life. That's not what it is. It's a fellow laborer, a co-laborer, someone that's saying, hey man, how's your marriage going? Right? I've been in a tough season with, with mine. Can we talk about it? Can we pray about it? Can we, you know, can we help one another? So, so like that, that's the type of relationship or, or hey man, how's, uh, how, how's it going at work? I know you have this coworker that is just eating your lunch, man, and you got anger in your heart and you're wanting to like do all kinds of things to express that anger. How's that going, man? Oh, I'm struggling with this coworker, man. I'm, we're having a hard time and this is difficult. So, so can we pray about it? Right, that, you need that Barnabas, that discipleship relationship where you open the word and you start to like walk through how you're supposed to operate in those relationships. The third one is you need a Timothy. A Timothy is like a younger believer, someone that's not as far along as you in your faith. And you can come alongside that Timothy in your life and you can encourage them and you can assist them and you can help them. We talk about in our sent strategy being sent to our three. So that's like our Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy in terms of discipleship. We also talk about being sent to three that people that don't know Christ that we want to just share Jesus with. So a healthy church is a church that has biblical evangelism. A healthy church is a church that has biblical discipleship. I want to say one more thing about discipleship. So I'm going to speak to the men first. Men, listen, your number one opportunity that you have to make disciples is in your household. Did you know that? We do a lot of really cool things as a church and I'm grateful for every one of them. I'm grateful for our men's ministry or women's ministry. I'm grateful for the life groups that we have, all the other things that we do. They're awesome. But if we're coming to church and doing all those things and neglecting our position in the home to disciple our families well, we're missing it, right? So what about you? What about you? How are you doing at leading your wife? How are you doing at leading your kids? Are you showing them Jesus? Are you helping them to grow in their walk with Christ? Are you growing so that you, you can pour out, right? Because you can't give what you don't got. You understand what I'm saying? It's important. So uh, think about that in terms of discipleship. What about you? How are you making disciples in your life. All right, so we've got biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship. Here's the third thing. There's also biblical church membership. So this word ecclesia uh, talks about the, the church being gathered together. It's the called out ones who are coming together. And what we see in the New Testament is this church that's gathered together, they're at a particular gathering and it's a particular group of people. I mentioned to you a few moments ago, I'm from North Florida and we were there over Christmas break and had a chance to go to my wife's home church. We were married in that church. Tomorrow will be 19 years ago in that church. Uh, so we're celebrating our anniversary tomorrow, but went to that church and was, was really cool just to be back home and to see those people. I've gotten to know those people over the last 20 years and it's just really special to always go back and, and be there. And I can tell you, those types of people, those are my people. Like I can relate to them. They can relate to me, all the things, right? I, I, it's just where we come from. I, I get it. But here's what I want you to hear from me. A little over four years ago, a little over four years ago, I remember very, very well, my wife and I had only lived in parsonages or pastoriums, whatever you want to call them, the churches, their homes that the churches own and they put their pastor there. And it's great. But we had just built a home, like where we were in North Florida, just built our home. And we were sitting in this home. We were in it maybe two years or less. 
we're sitting in this home and in my living room is uh, two deacons from this church, Scott Marley and Ken Gilbert. They're sitting in my living room and they're talking to me and, and my wife about the possibility of moving to Apex, North Carolina uh, to be a part of this faith family. And man, we're just kind of reeling because we have family 30 minutes uh, away. And it's not that we're so stuck on family, but we have three kids. And it is awesome to drop your three kids off with grandparents and go on dates. Man, that part is great. Uh, so, man, but family's close by and, and our kids still, I mean, to this day, they miss, they miss Papa and Mama and Mima and Granddaddy. Like they miss, they miss home and all that stuff. But we're sitting there and we're just kind of like thinking through all the things. And, and we committed ourselves to prayer and seeking the Lord's will. To make a long story really short, over four years ago, we were confident, confident that God had called us to Apex, North Carolina, to a particular place with a particular group of people. And we're still very confident in that. So why do I share that with you? Because when it comes to church membership, you find that place that God has you. And understand that sometimes that's a process, but it can't be a process forever. Like you have to dig your heels in and you have to be a part of the body of Christ and say, hey, this matters to me. This is, this is important. This is worth it. And we have to give ourselves to healthy church membership. Why? Here's why. The church is the gospel made visible. And you need to be a part of your local church. And you have to fight against this individualism that we sometimes, I, I'm kind of that way naturally. I can isolate and I can individualize and I can find myself there and, and I can just camp out there. But that's a dangerous place to be. You need to know how important it is for you to have gospel community. You need it. You need to be a part of, uh, of a faith family. If it's not ours, it needs to be a biblical uh, church. And man, we would help you to find that place, but be a part of the local church and give your life to it. Amen? I know what you're thinking. We're on number three and time is ticking. I'm thinking the same thing. Here we go. Number four, we're going to move on. Number four is biblical leadership. Biblical leadership. Now I'll go through these next two fairly quickly, but suffice it for me to say that a church needs leadership that honors Jesus. We see the credentials for leaders in 1 Timothy. We see it in Titus. You need leaders in your church that have a high level of character and that are, that are going to seek to honor Jesus in and through their life. Now, the true mark of a leader is the desire to build other people up. I think it was C.S. Lewis. I can't really remember, but he said that if you're going to be the conductor, if you're going to lead the orchestra, you're going to have to be willing to turn your back on the crowd. And that's something that's so important. And I have to think about that as the lead pastor here is like, man, I can't make any of this about me. It can never be about me. I think too much of the American church is built around a personality anyway. Come on, somebody. And it can never be about me. But sometimes because of my own pride, man, I'll break my arm patting myself on the back. You know what I'm saying? So we have to fight against that. And I would say this, man, I think this is really important as well when it comes to biblical leadership. Power is only safe in the hands of those who are humble. So if you want to know how to pray for me and pray for our, our leadership here, pray for humility. Pray that God would take care of any of that nasty, ugly pride where we want to make it all about us and pray that we'll walk in humility because a church, a biblical church needs healthy, humble church leadership. People that are qualified. Let me just say this in terms of qualification. It doesn't mean that we get all of those right all of the time because we're human and we fail. One pastor put it this way, and I actually really like this. He says, there are no great men of God. 
There's only men of God who have surrendered to Jesus and in his merciful and kind hand, he has chosen to use them. I think that's good. So God, help me to be humble and to submit myself to the hand of God that he may use me. The second one is similar. We need biblical teaching and biblical preaching. I think it's important for us to know that faithful Bible proclamation will be offensive. Will be. If we're faithfully teaching the word of God, faithfully digging into the word of God, there's going to be things that confront your sin. Now, a leader is not supposed to be a tyrant. It's supposed to be an under-shepherd. So anytime I preach, I want you to hear my heart. I want to be careful and tender and kind and meek and all the things with you. But I never want to veer from the truth of the word of God. For it is the word of God, the living word of God. And what we need most here is not any type of gimmick. It's not any type of man-made scheme. We need the unadulterated word of God. Come on, somebody. That's what we need. That's what we need. And it's going to confront you and it's going to confront me in our sins. And talk about gossip. Maybe that's a week you struggle. It's, oh, it's hitting me. Or maybe it's something that you didn't even know you're wrestling with and God's just pulling at you and it's convicting you. You've got two choices at that point. A lot of people run out the door and they say, that church is an unloving church. Right? And then other people say, man, thank you for loving me so much to give me that truth. And we need to be a church that is always full of grace, but always full of truth. That means no matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, none of it scares us. You can sit here and be loved and cared for, and we're going to treat you with the dignity that you deserve. But we're not going to massage on truth. We're going to give you the truth of God's word, man. That you need to surrender to him and trust in him and know that he is God. And if you have any unconfessed or unrepented sin in your life, you need to confess that to Jesus, man. You need to trust that he is able to forgive you of your sins. So once again, I just want to say this to be clear. I think in America, the church has veered way too far on the gimmicky side. And again, I... I can be guilty of this as well. It's so easy to get into performance mode and gimmick mode and all the things, but the gospel never needs any of that to affect conversion of the soul. Come on. That's probably not great grammar, but I hope it communicates. Never, never needs any of that to affect conversion of the soul. Here's number six, biblical ordinances. It's baptism and communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. So both of these ordinances, we believe as a church, we ought, to, we ought to do these and do these often. So we have two really large baptism services that we do each year. One's called Baptism on the Lawn and one is called Baptism at the Lake. The reason we do the big ones is because we have three services here on Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock, 10, 15, and the one that you're in. Again, you're in the best service, man. You've got the most space. This is a great time. And, and there's, you're kind of in the worst service too because there's no time clock for me on this one. Um, but I'll be mindful of that. Don't worry. But we do the big services so that everybody has the opportunity to, to, to gather at those baptism services. Now, with that said, I want to be very, 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 very clear. We will baptize anytime. Like if there's a need to baptize every Sunday, not only is that something that we would just be willing to do, we would be excited to do that. In every service, every Sunday, we would do it at any time. We got a baptistry right up here. We could fill it up with water and it's gonna be awesome. 
All right. So we, and we do that throughout the year. Periodically, we do baptize in the church service throughout the year. So just know that, that it's a both and for us. Now, the second one, communion or Lord's Supper, I think in the past, our church has done maybe quarterly, maybe semi-annual. I can't remember the rhythms that they did in the past. But um, since I've gotten here, one of the things that matters to me is like, we need to do it more often. So we're on a monthly schedule right now. We, we do communion the last Sunday of every month, and we try not to let anything get in the way of that. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to doing it more often than that. I, our ushers would be, I think. I think it makes them nervous every time. Uh, but man, so grateful for the opportunity to take the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents the blood of Christ and just say, God, thank you for what you have done. So a healthy church, biblical church, is a church that practices biblical ordinances. Number seven, biblical worship. What is biblical worship? Biblical worship is gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. So think of the way we sing, right? Singing worship unto God is attributing worth to him as an audience of one. That's why when you think about like songs that we sing, we wanna make sure that the, something that I know Pastor Sean and I talk about uh, quite a bit is, we, man, we want like robust songs. It's important. We don't want flimsy songs. We wanna make sure that what we're singing is honoring to Jesus. We don't want anything to be a barrier or to get in the way. Now, scripturally speaking, we see biblical instructions for worship in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. We see this, but there's so much freedom in the way that, it is expressed, right? And everybody has preferences. It's okay to have preferences. Some people like, you know, old traditional hymns. Some people like uh, super, super contemporary. Some people like just in between. Um, and that's okay. You can have preferences. There's nothing wrong with preferences. What, what matters is the content. Is the content pleasing to God? Are we biblically worshiping Jesus? Is he honored? See, when we're singing, we're not singing for one another, we're not elbowing our neighbor and saying, hey, I don't like this song or I do like, you know, or the way that it's presented. It's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're saying, man, we're, we're attributing worth to the only one worthy of our worship and adoration and praise. So a biblical church, healthy church has biblical worship. Here's number eight, biblical prayer. We need biblical prayer corporately. Now we need individualized prayer, but we need more than that. We need to be praying as a church. Why? Because in the book of Acts, every great move of God happened after God's people gathered to pray. Come on. So we corporately want to come together and say, God, we trust you. We believe that you are the senior pastor here. You're going to lead us. You're going to show us where to go and how to get there. We make decisions along the way. As a matter of fact, we're kind of in the midst of one right now where we're teetering a little bit. What do we do? Where do we land? And at the end of the day, all we're going to say is, God, whatever your will is, show us. Right? So as a church, we gather together. This is really the sweetest time that we have as a life group. And the life group that I'm a part of is I love getting with our life group and praying together. Uh, I love the text exchanges throughout the week that talk about like answer prayer and how God is moving and working. It's such a sweet time. So as a church, man, we need biblical prayer. It's so critical for us. More important than us getting more commentaries on prayer, more important than us hearing another Bible study on prayer, we just need to pray. And we ought to be praying as a church, which by the way, I'll say more on this later, but during Holy Week this year, which is the week leading up to Easter, we're gonna have this unbroken prayer chain, which is gonna be really cool. Uh, you don't wanna miss that. It's something that you can sign up for and be a part of. So we wanna pray often together. Here's number nine, biblical fellowship. We're almost there, hanging there. Biblical fellowship. How many of you grew up going to a church that had dinner on the grounds? A couple of you, man, a lot of y'all are missing out, okay? 
Uh, I used to always think biblical fellowship was rallied around fried chicken and field peas. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And that's biblical fellowship. And it certainly can be, but it's so much deeper than that. You know, biblical fellowship, I love to think of it this way. uh, And this is something that I read on the IMB website. I think it's so good. It encapsulates one another's. Here's what this means. You love one another, serve one another, care for one another, teach one another, serve one another, admonish one another, exalt one another, build up one another, and lastly, bear one another's burdens. Nine years ago, uh, December 4th, my, uh, my best friend in ministry at the time, he was a pastor, uh, he had just preached revival at our church. He was, he was gunned down at his church, life taken from him. It's a terrible situation. And I remember getting the phone call uh, that this had happened. And I, you know, I preached his funeral, all the things. Weighty, weighty, weighty thing. Um, every, every year around this time, I speak to his mom and uh, just have an opportunity just to talk with her. And it's, uh, man, it's just still something that you don't like, don't expect her or, or his dad, who I speak to as well, to, to like just get over that. It's a big thing. Um, and I think about when I was notified, when that happened on December 4th, I got the phone call. And shortly after that phone call, our chairman of deacons at the time, his name is Josh, about my age. Uh, he also worked for the sheriff's department. He had gotten some of the information of what had happened. He was out, I was outside my carport when I got the call. I was building a, like a, a play box for, uh, for our kids. And um, I got got the call and I'm just out there in my carport and Josh, man, in short order was in my carport right beside me. And I'm crying and he's crying and our burden is not for me or for him. You see, Josh had gotten to know him as well. Our burden was for the family, for the wife, for the kids, for the mom and dad. Our burden was for them. And, and so we wept together and we, we prayed together. And I think about biblical fellowship. That was it, man. That was it. And we need that. That's what the church is about, man. Right? So you've got biblical fellowship. Here's number 10, biblical accountability and discipline. We talked a little bit about this earlier with discipleship, but a church is awesome when the church operates correctly in terms of discipline and accountability because, listen, we can't give a little to Jesus and keep the rest. No, man, we want to honor him in our lives. And so a church gives you those parameters to say, hey, let's do that. Let's fan the flame together. Let's honor Jesus together. I think so many churches have gotten it wrong here to where anytime someone messes up, it's like they're out of the loop. And so everyone's afraid to talk about their ups and their struggles because they don't want to be out of the loop. They want to be in the proverbial circle. And that's just a dangerous thing. That's not what discipline and accountability is about at all. No, a healthy church that, that practices accountability and discipline says, we're all going to mess up, but we want to commit together to help one another when we're going down that path, right? We need that. We live in a world that has this great aversion to accountability and discipline. How's that turning out? Come on. It's a mess, right? God's given us the directions we need. Can this be abused? For sure. But man, we are called. We are called to have accountability. We're called to have discipline. This matters so much. Here's the last uh, two. Number 11, biblical giving. One of the Puritans says it this way. He says, giving is the true having. Now, I don't talk a lot about money. And um, it's not because I'm scared to talk about giving or whatever. I just love to preach through the Bible. And when I preach through the Bible, there's a lot of text about giving. When you go to those texts, when you get to those texts, you preach on it. 
When you're not in that text, I don't try to manipulate it to where it somehow goes back to giving. You been to those churches? All right, don't say yes. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a bad question. I'm sorry. Um, but it happens to where you can turn everything into a sermon about what your thing is. And uh, we're, let me just say a couple of things. We're a debt-free church. Praise God for that. You're very, very generous. Uh, giving is an act of worship. And we used to pass the plate, which is really cool because it's an act of worship. Now people feel like it's a Petri dish and they're scared of it since COVID and all the things. So we have giving boxes. We could and probably should say more about that. Uh, but for the time being, I will just say that, man, God has told us in Corinthians that what we have set our, on our heart to give, we should give. And with the rich young ruler, for example, Jesus tells him to give it all. And this isn't just about money. It's your time, treasures, and talents. Are you giving everything to Christ? I'll say a couple of things about this. Number one, the reason why I don't like hit the gas pedal on this uh, really hard is because my very first church when I was a student pastor in Daleville, Alabama, um, man, I remember preaching a sermon. I was wearing something similar to this. It probably wasn't even as nice as this. I know you're thinking that's not nice at all. It probably wasn't even as nice as this. And I preached a sermon and I, you know, the next day the pastor called me in his office. He's like, man, great sermon. God really used you. Here's the things that happened. I was like, man, this is great. And then he said, you can't dress like that anymore. I was like, what do you mean? He said, you got to wear a suit when you preach here. I was like, a suit? He's like, yeah. He said, you don't have a suit? I was like, no, sir. He said, wait a minute, you're in ministry and you don't have a suit? I said, no, sir, I don't have a suit. He said, your parents didn't buy you a suit growing up? I said, do you know my parents? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Um, I don't even know how to tie a tie, man. And, and so he's like, you need to get a suit. So I go out and go to attempt to buy a suit. And man, you know what I saw? Very quickly, I saw that I couldn't buy a suit. It cost so much money, man. But I felt the pressure of the church to, to buy this suit. And I'm like, man, I never want to make anybody feel that type of pressure. When you give, it should be with joy in your heart. And it should be something that you're doing to worship King Jesus. And I got to tell you, testimony after testimony of my life and my wife's life together, we have seen God do miraculous things through uh, just his conviction on our heart to give. You can't outgive God. All those things are true. But man, give with joy in your heart, not because some prosperity preacher manipulated you or made you feel like you have to do this in order to get the blessing of God in your life. That's crazy, man. Get over that kind of stuff, right? But you should give. You should. And your heart should be full of joy when you do. And often it should be sacrificial. And the church's responsibility is for the giving to be towards uh, gospel progression. Like... Like it matters the way all of that is budgeted and cared for. And we put a lot of energy around that, right? So here's the last thing. Last thing is biblical mission. Biblical mission. Spurgeon says you're either a missionary or an imposter. Congregations need to be actively engaged in making disciples both locally and globally. We are called to live sent lives. I said it this way in the last service, probably shouldn't have, but I'm gonna say it again. When I was 15 years old, I got this really terrible tattoo, which is what you would expect from a guy named Fester who tattoos you when you're 15 years old. And, uh, and that kind of cured me from tattoos. But if, if I were to get a tattoo today, this is not really, this is hyperbolic, but if I were to get a tattoo today, it'd probably be backwards and it would say live sent so that I could look in the mirror every day and see it right side up to me saying live sent because this is the call, man. This is the call on our life. God has called you, God has called me to live a sent life on mission every day. You wake up to that every single day. 
God's called us to do it. And I've said this before, man, that the world around us is not looking for a church to be perfect or for the Christian to be perfect. They're looking for the Christian to be authentic, to be real. So are you gonna be real in your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, your ends of the earth, wherever you go, are you gonna be a disciple maker, someone who's living on mission to make an impact for the kingdom? I pray so. I've said a ton today. I've gone way over, um, but I pray that God has used this in your life somehow, some way. Let's commit this year to being a church that understands we're not perfect. We're never gonna be because we're here, but we're gonna commit to linking our, har- our arms together and to saying, hey, we wanna be a church that honors King Jesus and that's a biblical, um, God-pleasing church in all that we do. That is our heart's desire. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. God, thank you that you're the one that builds your church. Lord, it's on the solid rock of who you are. You as chief cornerstone. God, you have promised to build your church and you have promised that there's nothing in the world that can come against it. And for that, we're grateful. So Lord, today, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that today they'll call on your name for salvation. They'll trust you as savior. And there's one here that just hasn't committed yet and they've been praying through it and working through it. God, I pray today that you'll give them a lot of wisdom on what their next steps need to be in commitment to your local church and fulfilling the mission that you have for our body of believers here in Apex, North Carolina. And we pray this in the powerful name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.